0: You guys, thank you for uh, thank you for allowing me to be your pastor. Uh, thank you for paying me to do this. I would do it for free, but uh, Karen needs more shoes, so Karen needs more shoes. So, but uh, yeah, I I was just. I was just overwhelmed this week as I studied the, the creation account and, you know, my job, a large part of my job is I get to be in God's Word and I just get to be in awe most of the time. And, uh, and I'm going to challenge you about that as we, as we look at the text tonight uh, in your own life. But a couple years ago, um, we did a sermon series on the Gospel of John. I, I did 77 sermons in the Gospel of John, and I didn't get anywhere close to scratching the surface of the irresistible beauty and compelling uh, divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. One of the noteworthy subplots of the Gospel of John is that most men reject Jesus Christ. The majority will reject Him despite the overwhelming evidence that He is, in fact, I Am. Before Abraham was... I am, the Lord Jesus said. You may remember in John chapter 5, the Jewish leaders were out to kill Jesus because He had claimed His divinity. And uh, they, they, despite all of the evidence, they were rejecting Him as the promised Messiah. Jesus told them, He said, John the Baptist has borne witness of Me. He said, My works have borne witness of Me. He said, My Father has borne witness of Me. He says, The Scriptures bear witness of Me. And then he said this, but you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. One thing we learned in the Gospel of John that men reject Jesus not because they don't understand, they reject Him because they do understand. They clearly understand that He's claiming to be God. And they'll have no God over them. Most men are are this way according to uh, the Scripture. The Scripture tells us about the... The sinful, wayward, rebellious heart of men. We see in the Gospel of John that unbelief is willful. Unbelief is stubborn. It's obstinate. It's deliberate. It's intentional. It's determined. It is premeditated. When you come in face to face with Jesus Christ, to persist in unbelief is a choice. It is a willful, determined, premeditated choice. Men don't reject God because they don't understand the gospel. They reject Him because they do. And that's just the truth, friend. That's a biblical truth. And that's the heart of the matter. As I continue to to look at the creation account in Genesis, and we talk about the world's view of of origins, that is the heart of the matter when we're talking about macro-Darwinian evolutionary theory. Ultimately, it's not really about the science. Ultimately. Ultimately. That's not really what it's about. There is no hard science to support the proposition that the cosmos came into being by spontaneous generation and is perpetuated by uh, random mutation and natural selection. There's absolutely no hard science for this, but men want to believe it. Men want to believe this because they believe it gives them license. It cuts their moorings from even the, the proposition that God is there and they become little sovereigns and they can run their own life and they can do whatever they want without having to give an account at least they believe that's the case men want to believe it because it allows them to dispense with God Louis Bornur who I quoted several weeks ago the director of research at the French National Center of Scientific Research said it best and I'm going to quote him again evolutionary theory. It's a fairy tale for grown-ups, but men want to believe it. Men want to believe it. They want to believe it. They believe it gives them license. Ultimately, it's not about the science. In fact, if you are current on science, if you're a reader, if you like these kinds of things, if you study science, and uh, you would, you'd be aware that uh, The data is increasingly pointing to a sudden supernatural uh, creation superintended by an incomprehensible intellect. This is where the data is going. And the stronger our telescopes get and the stronger our microscopes get, the more we see the glory of the Creator all around us. It's not that science doesn't understand where the data is taking them. They do understand and they don't like it i've i've quoted uh, this to you before but several notable scientists use words like the prospects of special creation these prospects are repugnant they are distasteful and they are traumatizing it's not that they don't know where the date is going it's that they don't want to go there it's not about the date it's about fallen rebellious dark hearts of men who willfully suppress the truth we have talked about this several times the truth about His Creator and His accountability to His Creator. I've quoted Romans 1 several times through this series, but I can't help it. I keep My mind keeps going back to Romans 1. It's, it nails it. That's what this is about. It's about rebellion of haughty creatures against an awesome Creator God. I'm going to share with you a little bit of Romans 1 again. I can't help it. It perfectly elucidates the issue at hand when we talk about the world's view of origins. Romans 1, 20 to 22. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, He says. Not only are they clearly seen, He says, they've been understood through what has been made so that men are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There it is. Macro-Darwinian evolutionary theory. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth for a lie. God is seen in the data, friends, He's inescapably and unavoidably seen in the data. He's seen. If you don't see Him in the data, (laughs) um, it's a suppression. It's a suppression of the obvious truth. It's not that God is not seen. It's that God is rejected. God is rejected. David, I shared this with you a couple of weeks ago. David said it perfectly in the Psalms. Uh, there's evidence of God within and there's evidence of God without. Uh, Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. We talked a lot about that last week as God spoke the stellar heavens, 20 billion times 6 trillion as He spoke that into existence. And Psalm 139.14, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, said the Lord God. Last week we talked about the glory of uh, of God evident in, in the cosmos at large. And this week I want to talk about the glory of, of God on a much smaller scale as we talk about God uh, speaking into existence conscious uh, creatures. In Darwin's day, science was clueless about the complexity of the cell. They, they couldn't really see it. They thought it was uh, just ver- a very simple a building block of life. They did not have the... the the microscopes they needed they thought it was very unimpressive I heard a an interviewer ask a scientist in my research this week uh he, asked, he kept asking these scientists this question if Darwin thought the cell was a mud hut what do we know it is today and I love what one scientist said one scientist says we know that it's more complex than a Saturn V rocket we know that the cell the best answer was we know that the cell is more like a galaxy then it is a mud hut, which uh, is analogous to what Darwin thought it was. Another scientist said this, that advanced engineering principles must be used to understand and explain the interworkings of the single cell. To get some dimension, I know you can't understand this. We were looking at light years last, last week, right? This week we're looking at micrometers, a micrometer, is 1 millionth of a meter. That's the uh, 10 micrometers is the average size of a single living cell. The mass of, of a single cell is 1 nanogram. I know you don't understand that, but what I what I'm trying to communicate to you is it's very small. Is everybody with me? It's very small. A light year is very long and a nanogram is very small. You guys are sharp. You guys are sharp. So there oh so you get some dimension there are 100 trillion living cells in your body, Uh, 100 trillion. Molecular biologist and author Michael Denton describes it like this, the living cell is an object of unparalleled complexity and supreme technology. Don't you love that? And then he takes his reader on a little bit of an excursion into the cell. Now, I'm just going to read to you for a minute, and I want you to hang with me, okay? Denton says we will enter uh, into the cell through one of the millions of openings of the cell that let materials flow in and out. Millions of openings on a thing that is one millionth of what a micrometer or whatever. It 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 boggles my mind. As we enter, we see highly organized corridors and conduits branching in in every direction. It would resemble an, an immense automated factory. We would marvel at the level of control implicit in the movement of so many objects down so many seemingly endless conduits in in perfect unison. We would see all sorts of robot-like machines performing various functions. At the nucleus, we would see the miles of coiled chains of DNA molecules stacked together in order to raise. We would notice the simplest... Of the uh, functional components of the cell the protein molecule which are which is astonishing complex pieces of the molecular machinery each one consisting of about 3,000 atoms Denton continues despite all of our accumulated knowledge of physics and chemistry the task of designing one such molecular machine that is one functional protein molecule is utterly and completely beyond the capacity of man Denton says not only is this cell uh, highly complex it's a highly complex of factory of life it is able to replicate itself entirely within a few hours God's glory is on display in the living cell his glory is on display in the seemingly infinite cosmos and his glory is on display in the seemingly uh, infinitely complex living cell it's an astonishing thing I wanted to uh, share a couple some of you some of you have no interest in these things Some of you do uh, Michael Behe he's a biochemist he he's, he's really probably at the forefront of, of challenging uh, Michael Darwinism on a on a uh, scientific basis but Darwin's black box you need to read it if you're interested in these things with respect to the complexity of the cell and uh, how Darwinism breaks down when you get down to the complexity of the cell. His proposition is called irreducible complexity. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you the other one. Uh, be He the Edge of Evolution, where he... I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later, where he, uh, goes, where he tries to define the, the edge of what uh, evolutionary theory can do. One scientist said this, we find information, functionality, and design in the cell that cannot be accounted for by undirected natural forces. The complexity of the single cell presents us with massive design implications. Beloved, God's fingerprints are all over the 50 plus billion galaxies in the cosmos and His fingerprints are all over the complexity of the single cell. You heard the text read, Genesis chapter 1, verse 20 to 25. Let me just read it again. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed... Uh, Blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Again, we see, as we've seen all the way through Genesis chapter 1, God employing His incomprehensible power and His uh, incomparable genius. He speaks countless hundreds of billions upon countless hundreds of billions upon countless hundreds of billions of complex cells and and animals and fish. He just speaks them into existence like like we exhale. He just effortlessly, effortlessly speaks them into existence. God continues to create ex nihilo out of nothing, and this is brand new. God is doing something brand new here. He's com- he's 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 creating highly complex, conscious conscious life forms. And beloved, there's there's absolutely and we talked about this last week yes i know that that some some people who call themselves christians and uh they they have they have accepted evolution and they've thrown it into the genesis account and what i want to say to you is i understand that there are theistic evolutionists out there what i want to say is to you there's no there are no grounds for that if you if you actually read the bible you have to import it in there there are no grounds uh to uh, be reading long ages of evolutionary progress into the text, it's not in the text. You can't get it out of the text. Uh, you can't even really legitimately import it into the text. It does not fit the plain meaning of the words. And I'm going to say it to you again. I've said it every sermon on this series. I'm going to say it one more time. We must not import macro-Darwinian evolutionary theory into Genesis one to maintain our intellectual integrity. In fact, the exact opposite is true. We must must reject macro-Darwinian evolutionary theory uh, because we do have intellectual integrity. And so we will not import it into the Genesis account. That is a scholarly statement. That is an intellectual statement. It's not merely a theological one. And I'm going to keep saying that until we're through with this series. Verses 20 and 21. God speaks the oceans and the rivers and the lakes and the ponds full of life. I love the Hebrew here. Uh, The Hebrew is quite graphic. It says, let the waters swarm with swarming things. The Hebrew is beautiful. From microscopic organisms to giant sea monsters, God fills all the waters of the world by a single verbal command. Let it be and it is done. A global, highly complex, intricate, interdependent ecosystem is simply spoken into existence in a nanosecond. This is your Father God. For all of you who are Christians in here tonight, this is your Father God. This is what He's capable of doing in His spare time. Friends, I've told you, as we've gone through Genesis chapter 1, you and I are supposed to be worshiping. When we read these kinds of things, if it's not driving you to your face, there's something wrong. It's supposed to drive you to your face. And you're supposed to worship Him and and, and adore Him and be in awe of who He is. Yes, this awesome Creator is... Oh, He's the one on the cross. He's the awesome Redeemer. How can you not worship this, Christian friend? It's supposed to impact the way we live every single day. So God speaks plankton and seahorses and and archerfish and sea cucumbers and hermit crabs and tuna and lobsters and eel and octopi... Is that right? I think that's right. And porpoises and sharks and whales, uh, the list is, e- endless, is is seemingly endless. It's just draw, dro- jaw-dropping power. I can't even get it out. Jaw-dropping power and genius on display. God just speaks effortlessly into existence. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. David got it right in Psalm 8. And when we study Genesis one, that's where we're supposed to go. We're supposed to end up there with David in Psalm eight, praising our awesome Father Creator God. In verses twenty and twenty one, God speaks. The skies full of a vast array of birds, over ten thousand different species. Those are just the ones that are not extinct that we know about. From hummingbirds that'll fit in, in that they can fit in a tablespoon to an albatross whose wingspan is twelve feet across flamingos and peacocks and pelicans and canaries and cockatoos and woodpeckers and finches and parrots and pigeons and crows. And maybe we didn't need so many pigeons, but sparrows. And the list is long and varied. And God just speaks them into existence. He just speaks them into existence like you and I exhale. Oh, and you know the great text when I I wrote that, that line there about the sparrow. Oh, guess what? Guess what? Someone tell me. Someone tell me about the sparrow. His eyes on the sparrow. There are countless billions of sparrows around the globe. Not one will fall to the ground apart from the will of the Creator Father God. How much more is His eye on you, Christian friend? I just had to. I had to get up from behind my desk. I had to go lay on my face. How much more? It's His eye on you, Christian friend. Another breathtaking display of sheer intellectual prowess and omnipotent power. God just speaks into existence these complex life forms. And as I studied this, my mind went to Exodus 15.11, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Exodus 15.11, the Jews exclaim, "'Who is like Thee among the gods, O Lord?' Who is like Thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Who is like our God? There is no one like our God. He has no peer. He has no colleague. He is all by Himself. He is the only uncreated being in the cosmos. And He creates ubiquitous wonders. That just means uh, omnipresent wonders. Wonders are everywhere. God just speaks them into existence, beloved. I want to challenge you on this point. There is wonder all around you and within you. There's no exhausting it if you are looking for it. If you no longer see it, it's because you have become neg- negligent. It's not because it's not there. It's because you have become negligent. Listen to John Piper. One of the tragedies of growing up is that we get used to things. What a tra- isn't that a tragedy? We get used to things. There's immense loss, he says, when we get used to the redness of the rising sun and the roundness of the moon and the whiteness of snow and the blueness of the sky and the buzzing of bumblebees and the stitching of crickets and the weirdness of noses and ears, etc., etc., etc. If you've lost the wonder, friends, I, I, I would encourage you to pray that, that God, ask God to grant you moments when you take absolutely nothing for granted. Nothing. Nothing. I dare you to count your blessings. I dare you. I dare you to block off a week and just try to count your blessings and you will not be able to get to the end of them if you're diligent in your efforts. I dare you to count your blessings, to meditate on all the wonders of God, who He is, what He's done, uh, how He's made you and what He's doing in your life. I promise you deep and abiding worship will happen if you meditate on the awesome goodness of god david knew how not to take anything for granted go to psalm 145 it's the psalm that i opened the service with david said great is the lord and highly to be praised his greatness is unsearchable listen to this on the glorious splendor of thy majesty and on thy wonderful works i will meditate let me ask you christian how much time did you spend last week meditating on God and on who He is and on what He's done and on how He just continues to shower countless blessings upon you. How much time did you spend this week meditating? David tells us how to, how to not take anything for granted. We're to meditate. And then David says, I will meditate on these things. And then he says, I will tell of Thy greatness. I will tell of Thy greatness. Davis has, David has purposed and He expends great energy not to take anything for granted. Let me ask you, friend, Christian friend, is that true of you? Is it one of your priorities when you get up in the morning? I am not going to take anything for granted today. Nothing. Not my God. Not my salvation. Not, my, not the Holy Spirit. Not my wife. Not my kids. Not my husband. Not the, the, the provision God has made for me. Not my full stomach. I'm not going to take anything for granted today. It will change your life if you look at life like that. It will change every single day of your life. So Christian friend, how often do you meditate on the greatness of God? And how often is it on your lips? How often are you speaking about the greatness of God? How often are you telling about His greatness to your family, to your neighbors, and to your coworkers and to your friends? I want to challenge you to consciously do that. I want to challenge you to do that. Verse 22, God blessed all the creatures he had made and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, and to fill the seas and the earth, and there was an evening and a morning, a fifth day. And then we see in verses twenty-four and twenty-five, God speaks all the land-based life forms into existence, from insects and spiders and worms and snails and mice and chipmunks and badgers and oxen and giraffes and duckbill platypus is and platypies. P- platypies and uh aardvarks and orangutans and elephants and etc 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 God speaks them into existence like you and I exhale again worship provoking creative genius and limited power on display he fills the earth with complex life forms in a nanosecond Now, parenthetically, I want to make a comment here. In light of the fact that God is creating all the land-based animals, uh, in this verse it seems a good place to mention dinosaurs. I can't tell you in my 20, well, since I became a Christian in 83, and I've been teaching almost every year since then, um, I can't tell you how many times I get asked about the dinosaurs. I'm always amazed that I get asked about the dinosaurs. Um, It's a legitimate question. But people seem to have a, a, an issue with the dinosaurs with respect to the creation account in Genesis. And I'm not, I don't have any great insight for you. No one really knows what transpired. But to me, it seems reasonable to assume that the dinosaurs went extinct prior to the flood. It seems reasonable for me uh, to assume that. There are differing views here. You can pursue that on your own. But Christian friend, don't get hung up on the dinosaurs. <laughs> Praise God, our theology is a little deeper than that. I pray that it is. So don't get hung up on the dinosaurs. In his book, On the Origin of Species, Darwin sketched an evolutionary tree to highlight the ascent of man from lower and less complex life forms. It's one of the icons of evolutionary theory. It's in every book, almost every science book that you ever pick up. You will see this tree in there. There's only one problem with this fossil tree. It exists nowhere in the fossil record. It does not exist anywhere on the planet. In fact, if it did exist, it would be 100 miles high. It does not exist. I know it's taught as fact. It does not exist in the geological column. It does not exist. Go research it for yourself it does not exist in fact the exact opposite is true if you go to the fossil record the exact opposite is true it reveals a sudden and abrupt appearance of thousands of complex life forms and body plans anybody know what it's called if you've read this book you know what it's called it's called the, the Cambrian explosion it was just the sudden appearance of, of complex life forms and body plans It's called the biological Big Bang. And just as the cosmological Big Bang corroborated Genesis 1-1, that is that the heavens and earth had a beginning. Science understands that. It's not eternal. It had a beginning. And if if there was a beginning, this makes our case for us, if there was a beginning, how did the beginning begin? So don't run from the Big Bang. Don't run from the Big Bang. It actually makes our case for us. Although they don't know how to speak about it, Science calls it the Big Bang. The cosmos had a beginning. The Cambrian explosion corroborates. Genesis 1, 20 to 25. The sudden appearance of complex life and body plans all at the same time. That's what's in the fossil record. I know you don't hear that in academia. I know you don't hear that in the media. I know you don't hear that in uh, 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 theistic uh, theistic evolutionist uh, leaning churches. But that's what the fossil record reveals go research it for yourself it's like the writer of Genesis chapter 1 was an eyewitness or something oh he was he was Stephen C. Meyer the Cambridge educated physicist geologist and molecular biologist with advanced degrees in evolutionary theory I've told you this before but I just love this quote this is one maybe one of the smartest men on the planet he says, science done right points to God every time. Unless you're bringing presuppositions to your, your, to your science and you're manipula- manipulating your data, good science points to God every single time. So I'm going to challenge you again, beloved. Educate yourself. Educate yourself. This is one place where the battle for truth rages you need to be educated. You need to be able to speak about these things. In the very least, you need to be able to point your friends and your family to good, uh, to good books and good websites so they can research on their own. I, I want to challenge you not to be negligent in this. And for all of you who are parents or plan to be parents, I'm going to challenge you again. You have to fight for the intellectual integrity of your children. If you don't, uh, they will be indoctrinated. They will be indoctrinated. It will happen. If you personally don't fight for their intellectual integrity. Did you notice uh, as I read the text this, this oft-repeated phrase, after their kind, it's, it's repeated more often than any other phrase in, in, the, in Genesis chapter 1 ten times. God says, I made it after their kind. It's like God is refuting Darwin 3,300 years prior to his birth. Because Moses wrote... Genesis, around 1450 B.C. And God is refuting, <laughs> it's like He's refuting Darwin before He's born. As many of you know, Darwin was a 19th century scientist. So Darwin's assertions that, uh, that na- random mutation, natural selection are adequate hypothesis for uh, the evolution of, of complex life forms from a single uh, simple life form is being dismissed more and more by scientists. Do the research. Do the research for yourself. Uh, Michael Behe, a biochemist, says in his book entitled The Edge of Evolution, this is it. If you like this stuff, man, you've got to read this book. It's worship-provoking. Both these books are worship-provoking. But Behe says this, the results are in. I want you to listen to this. This is a Ph.D. at Lehigh University, a biochemist, who's done extensive research, who has published, he says the results are in Darwinism's most basic prediction is falsified. It's falsified. <laughs> the verdict's in. And he's right. he's like other scientists. They, they've been studying bacteria. And bacteria multiplies 400,000 times faster than human generations. So they can, watch, they can watch tens of millions of generations in a very short time. They can watch uh, enough bacteria in a short time that's equivalent to one million uh, years of human uh, existence and procreation. And the conclusions they have come up with are devastating to macro-Darwinism. For one, most of you already know this, that most mutations are harmful to assert that mutations random mutations would be uh, would be uh, universally positive is just is not warranted based on the facts but as these scientists watch these millions of generations of bacteria they only see minor mutations minor mutations and again this is macro uh, Pardon me this is microevolution and i know some of you are saying well, jim you're talking a lot of science i know i am because i hope I, I hope to stimulate you to become educated i hope i do you need to become educated and you need to run to where the battle's raging the battle rages here we need to educate our children we need to educate our young people somebody needs to stand up and say what the truth is and and that needs to be you and it needs to be me but this is microevolution. that's that's changes within species and they find that it's extremely limited and very minor and in fact, Behe, as he did extensive study on malaria and HIV microbes, he reported that there is, seems to be a limit to two micro-mutational muta- steps. It's like, yes, we all know that, that medicine be- can, come, can become resistant. We understand that. We understand that. That is a viable mutation uh, in a m- micro-sense. That happens. Behe says, That happens. But B, he says, once you get past one or two minor mutations, that's it. The organism is genetically constrained by its own DNA. Again, I encourage you to get educated. The net result is this. Possible microevolutionary change is shown to be minute, which leaves macroevolution in the realm of fairy tales. According to Professor Bourneur. one scientist said that to accommodate all of the mutational changes needed to bring uh, needed to get to man, a conscious uh, man, self-conscious man, from from a single cell or, or very simple uh, lower life form, it would take longer. It would take longer for that to happen, just for mathematical probability's sake then the earth is, is now said to be old. It would take over, you know, when you'll read different estimates. I read anywhere from 10 to 15 out to, to the outward 20 billion years for the age of the earth. But the, the, the biologists and the mathematicians are saying it's impossible. It could never happen in that time. It could never happen. It's simply impossible. One more quote for you. Well, maybe a few more. Listen to what world-class zoologist Pierre Grasse says. A single plant or animal would require thousands and thousands of lucky mutations. Thus miracles would become the rule. Events with infinitesimal probability could not fail to occur. There is no law against daydreaming, but science should not indulge it. Beloved, the data, the fossil record, and biological mutational limits. It does not support what the world is trying to teach. In fact, the science is pointing toward a sudden creation event by an incomparable intellect. That's what God has told His people in Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to continue to challenge you to simply believe what God has said to you. Simply believe what He has said. I want to close by, I just want to talk a little bit about DNA, uh, and, and I'll, I'll be done. I know this is more like a science classroom, and we only, have, we only have one more sermon like this, and I'll get back to verse-to-verse preaching, but let me just talk to you for a minute about DNA. Um, you know what it is, right? It's the software that's inside every one of your cells. Just listen to this. DNA, right. Deoxyri- Ribonucleic acid. Stephen C. Meyer calls it the library of life. There are just vast quantities of data within the DNA. As mentioned to you earlier, you have 100 trillion cells in your body. Some of us have more than others, but you have approximately 100 trillion cells in your body. Every one of those cells has a physical strip of DNA. It's coiled up, coded information, and it's about your physical makeup okay listen if i take the dna out of one of your cells and uncoiled it here in the front you couldn't see it without a microscope it would be seven foot long that's one cell seven foot long that is one cell if you took the dna out of every cell in your body it would stretch it would stretch from the earth to the sun over 100 times that's every that's all the dna in your body listen to this If you typed out all the encoded information and all the DNA and all the cells of your body, it would fill the Grand Canyon multiple times. This is how much data is in DNA. This is why scientists are starting to run from Darwin. No Darwinist can explain how the information got in the cell. It's inexplicable. It's inexplicable. And I'll have a quote next week for you about that. So all the information needed to build you, to build 200 bones, 600 muscles, 10,000 auditory nerve fibers, 2 million optic nerve fibers, 100 billion nerve cells, 400 billion feet of blood vessels and capillaries, it's packed into the DNA. All the information needed to specify uh, the design of all the species of organisms which have ever existed on our planet, a number estimated to be approximately 1,000 million, could fit in a teaspoon, and there would still be room for all the information contained in every book ever written. What I want to say to you is is these cells are like little microcomputers, and men don't even understand them all. And then we want to postulate... That by spontaneous generation and random mutation and natural selection, here we are. It's a great insult to the Creator God. It's a haughty, arrogant insult to the Creator God. Beloved, massive and incomprehensible genius is on display. And Darwinists cannot account for it. I mean you can make you can make you may have heard this before, it's a philosophical argument. But you can make a, a, a logically sound argument that there, it, it's impossible for mind to, to, to evolve from inanimate matter. It's impossible. That a complex conscious mind could ever evolve from uh, inanimate matter. It's, it's impossible. It has to be the other way around. Mind has to give rise to matter. Matter could never give rise to mind. God the God hypothesis is the only reasonable hypothesis. And everything is ready. The earth is ready. Paradise is ready. It's perfect. And as we close in verse 25, God says that it's good. And next week we will see God's creation of man. And we will, be, uh, we will finish this series. Probably some of you are happy that we're finishing this series. It's too much science, Jim. You're making my head hurt. But really all I want to do is what your appetite. I want you to study on your own. And I want you to be able to defend Genesis 1 and never look back. You defend Genesis 1. It's what your Father says. I don't care what any scientist says. I don't care what any theistic evolutionist says. Even if he wears a cool hat, I don't care what he says. I'm going to go with what God says. And I'm challenging you to do the same. I'm challenging you to do the same. I'm done, but listen to this. I love what Job told uh, Zophar in, in Job chapter 12 when he was talking about the overruling sovereignty of God in all things. Listen to this. Job says, But now ask the beasts and let them tell you, and the birds of the heavens and let them tell you, or speak to the earth and let it teach you, and let the fish of the sea declare to you, who among these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done these things? in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Job says, the beasts of the field know it. Only mankind is haughty enough to deny it and reject it. I love that passage. The whole created order knows that the the Creator is there. So unbeliever, I have a challenge for you. The Bible says you know the truth. The Bible says you know the truth. And God knows you know the truth. That's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 1. So I want to exhort you to stop suppressing that truth. And I want to exhort you to flee to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and to be saved. That's my invitation to you tonight. And If you don't know Christ and you don't know what that means, I'll be happy to talk with you. You come talk with me after the service. Now Christian... My challenge to you is this. The Bible reveals that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and the Bible reveals that you are fearfully and wonderfully redeemed. Let me ask you, are you living like it? Are you living like you're fearfully and wonderfully made and are you living like you are fearfully and wonderfully redeemed? Do you believe it and are you living like it? So I exhort you, Christian, to worship, love, believe, trust, Obey this awesome Creator, Redeemer God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, with utter and complete abandonment. It is the call of the Creator, Redeemer God, to His Creator, pardon me, to His created and Redeemed people. The Lord Jesus says, Matthew ten Uh, 24 to 25, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray together. Father, there's nothing left for us to do but to worship. Forgive us that so often we are so spiritually dull and so preoccupied with the things of the world that we don't take time to meditate on Your greatness. And we don't speak about Your greatness to our friends and to our families to our neighbors, and to our children, and to our spouses, and to our co-workers. Oh God, this is the only reason You left us on the planet. It would be far better to be with You, but You have left us here to proclaim the sufficiency and the beauty and the glory of Your Son. Oh God, may we be a people in this church. May we take that stewardship seriously. May we be about your business first and our business second. May we count our blessings and worship and be in awe for that will change our lives on a daily basis to meditate on your goodness and how you just keep showering us with with every blessing from the heavenlies. Father, teach us to be a people of wonder and awe, people of genuine worship, heartfelt worship, hearts on fire worship, minds on fire worship. Help us, Father, to proclaim Your awesome Godness in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.